Welcome to a homegrown family podcast where we grow the produce and the kids. Hey, everybody. Welcome to a homegrown family podcast. I am your host, Joe Mettler, and uh, today we're talking about a variety of things, but primarily, what do we do in the wintertime when it comes to orchard activities? You know, one might think that there's not much to do in the orchard slash vineyard when the snow lay on the ground, but trees and vines are dormant, but there are things to do. So as far from the truth, there's definitely lots of activities to participate in. You know, in a young and growing orchard, not all plants survive, you know, the initial transplanting. You know, not all plants survive disease, you know, when they occur, when it occurs and things. And sometimes you get voles that chew off your bases of your, your grapes and your apples, and that destroys an apple. There's a lot of replacement activities that take place during the wintertime. As far as ordering what you want to get for the next year in terms of rootstock or scion wood and cultivars to order. And we also make decisions on you know, what things to prune. We always prune the grapes and the apples. So today I have one of the primary decision makers, my brother David here with us, who is here to discuss these winter type topics. Welcome aboard. Happy to be here to discuss some more of our fun activities that we have in the winter. (laughs) And hopefully everybody listening here is getting a little kick out of a progression of different things, you know, in terms of our orchard. You heard a little bit about how it started what we started and you know what grapes and cultivars we have in there, some of the issues you may have in the orchard. And now we're talking about winter activities. If you listen to previous episodes, you'll know that we will have both apples and grapes at the orchard. And they've been growing there, you know, since about 2014, 2015. David kind of started that and dad kind of started that. And so, yeah, that's kind of where we're at now. We have the apples at the end, the grapes, and we're in central Minnesota on about an acre, two acres on my dad's farm. And we are in kind of the growing hardiness USDA zones three slash four. It's kind of where we're at. Let's first talk about the grapes. How are things looking this year, David, in terms of being out there? Normally, you have to trudge through a foot of snow to get out to the orchard to do any pruning or to look at anything. It's been a little different this year. It has been. And a foot of snow is optimistic. Usually, it's <laughs> at least past my knees uh, walking up there. For anyone who doesn't know, we, we don't have a snowmobile. And so it involves me walking a half a mile through the snow to prune the grapes is what it looks like. Generally speaking, um, as the primary decision maker, as Joe may have called me (laughs) earlier, um, that means I'm also primarily responsible for mistakes uh, that occur. One of those, you know, Joe talked about replacing plants or, or, you know, having to do things differently. And sometimes it's not the plant that's necessarily has died or anything, but perhaps as uh, beginners, we planted the wrong thing, right? Maybe we planted a cultivar that wasn't appropriate for our growing area, didn't overwinter well. Maybe we chose a rootstock that didn't perform as, as best as it could have. We could have selected something else. So we'll get into that a little bit. And for those of you guys who, who aren't aware, who too have maybe just been jumping on the last couple episodes, we set up this orchard in a fashion where we have Many different cultivars out there, you know, blocks of like four different plants here, four different plants there. And so we've been using it as like a test area to see what kind of grows, what kind of doesn't. And so it's not completely unexpected that we might chuck a cultivar out the window if it hasn't been doing good for us. Exactly. Yeah, we, uh, we're we true researchers. You know, that's what we do for our, uh, our living right now. Joe's at NDSU and I'm at a cooperative. And so we kind of take that to our fun hobby activities as well. So talking about grapes, so 
first thing to note is obviously Joe mentioned the pruning takes place in the winter, either late winter, early spring generally. This year, I did jump the gun a little bit. I was a little early out there. However, there was no snow. <laughs> That's a perk so for sure. I took advantage of that opportunity to not have to trudge through the snow. And I was also able to prune off the lower vines that were coming off on the trunk too that may have normally been covered up with a foot or two of snow. So that made that process a lot easier, getting rid of those vines that are coming off the uh, main trunk. And another thing that was nice is it was a little warmer out this year. Normally I'm freezing out there and I can only last about an hour. Uh, This last Saturday I was out there for five, six hours in one day and it wasn't too bad. So question here for you, David, when you're out there, did you see any budding on the grapes? Are the grape buds swelling out there? Because it's warm enough out there. I'm kind of worried about it. Yeah, so I did not notice any bud swelling out there. The ground is still fairly cold. Uh, you know, it might be warm outside, but there's still a frost layer there, right? There's still a decent amount of cold temperatures near the surface. It might feel nice as far as the air temp goes, but I feel like we're not quite getting warm enough for that bud break yet. And also, you know, the grapes aren't necessarily just going to come out of dormancy because of some warmer air temperature. Varieties are all different in how much time they need to have in in cold, I guess, before they might break dormancy. There's that chilling requirement. And some plants also require a, a photo period, you know, so much sunlight to actually break dormancy as well. I'm not that familiar with how grapes react to all those things, but I did not see anything of concern at the moment. Uh, one nice thing about grapes is they do have a lot of buds. Um, so if you do get growth coming out of some of the buds at the end of a spur or a vine, they generally don't break bud on all of their buds at the same time. It's usually the ones on the end. And so if those swell, get a frost, you know, die off, you'll usually have some buds lower than that that can grow and take over. So I'm not too concerned yet. I saw a thing uh, on social media the other day how there's apples in southern Minnesota that are budding out. And I was like, oh, no, (laughs) please no. (laughs) So for those that don't know, I am in more southern Minnesota down in Renville. And one of my neighbors tapped his maple tree in the last week. And he actually got a few buckets of maple sap from his tree. The plants are all screwed up. He's tapping his maple tree in January. That ain't right. (laughs) It's a false spring, you guys. Don't do it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. The big primary risk with a, if plants do bud out and then it freezes again, there's that potential to cause that bud to die off, right? Correct. that's, That's the primary risk that we're kind of alluding to here talking about. So. There's another risk involved that does not have to do with the bud swell or bud breaking. Uh, With a warm winter, we also don't have any snow cover. And plants in Minnesota are used to having a decent amount of snow cover to kind of protect them from the really harsh, you know, negative 40 degree days when it gets really cold out with that wind chill. And if we get some of that after we have no snow cover, we could see some winter dieback from plants because the roots are going to be exposed to those temperatures. Lose that insulation layer of snow. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah. Hopefully we get some more snow before colder temperatures, if the colder temperatures happen. (laughs) Maybe we'll be right into spring, as Phil said. (laughs) I can't imagine if if our grapes start budding out here soon and they don't freeze off or anything. 
we're gonna be harvesting grapes in like end of August. <laughs> oh, we'll get some some cold weather. Going into the trellis system that we have, because I believe that the great pruning that you do does depend a lot on what trellis system you're using. And so we're using a high wire system. So it's just a single high wire. We have ours, you know, around five, five and a half feet, because I don't like bending over when I'm pruning grapes or picking grapes. So they're a little higher than some people might have them. And so for our grapes, we're generally using one or two main trunks going up to that wire. And then we have a cordon or the, the main vine going each direction. And then after that, every year, the grapes will put on a ton of growth, right? They'll have these vines or these spurs that come out of buds on this cordon. And they'll grow, you know, 8, 10 feet long, it seems like sometimes. We have to prune that all back to two to four buds per spur. And we don't want to have too many spurs next to each other either. So we're looking at a four to six inch space in between spurs on the cordon for a total of, you know, I try to shoot for around 40 buds on a great plant. And the reason we're doing that is we don't want to have an overproduction of flowers and grapes on an individual plant. We still want to have nice sized grape clusters. And so we're reducing the amount of grape clusters that will be produced so we have nice fruit. And so really it, it looks like a lot of pruning. There's a lot of vines and, and growth that gets trimmed off and is laying on the ground to get picked up in the spring. Yeah, and so it's important to pick up that you know, some people might think you just toss it aside into the corner of the orchard there, but you got to pick up that that vine material and get it farther away from the from the grapes and everything, because you know they might harbor some leaf diseases or blights or whatever that were on last year's vines. You need to clean up all the vine cuttings and everything, and we try to take it out of our vineyard orchard area and dispose of it in a pile out in the woods. Generally speaking, my dad gets to uh, take on that task. He loves it. Yeah, I'm he's sure he's <laughs> so while we're out there pruning, as Joe alluded to earlier, we generally have some plants to replace, whether that's because they died or we just decided we don't like that cultivar. And the time to decide that, you know, which ones need to be replaced probably occurs in the fall, right? You take account on what you need to do. But then in the winter, when we're taking our, our pruning, our grapes, that's when it's time to collect those cuttings and use those to start new plants. What does that look like? Well, let's uh, just take a vine, for example. I'm going to take St. Croix, and I want to produce you know, six new plants to replace some old ones. Well, I'm going to go out there and collect quite a few vines, um, and it's going to be all first-year growth, you know, new growth from this year. And I'm going to be looking for something that has quite a few buds on it, Probably not a cane that's got really long inner nodes because then they're just, you want to have several buds on each cutting. And if you have really long inner nodes, then you're just dealing with these really long sticks. And it just is a pain when you're trying to store them and root them in your basement for me. And they take up a lot of space. Uh, so I'm looking for something with shorter inner nodes, a lot of buds and healthy green tissue, right? We don't want something that's dead. So when you're pruning and looking for vines to use for your cuttings, you want to look for ones that are alive, right? When you're pruning, you're going to see on the inside of the vine, it's going to be green. That cambium layer will be alive, green. But if it's brown, that means it's dead and already died back from the winter. And so uh, you got to make sure that you grab a nice live vine for that, obviously. Now, 
When I take these cuttings, obviously I want to label them in case I'm taking more than one, you know, maybe wrap some tape around them, write the variety name on it. When I get back to my house, I will keep them cool, either leave them outside out of the sun until I get to them or process it right away. When you're collecting those cuttings, do you um, get a towel and kind of keep the cutting area that you just cut moist or is that not, a, not an issue right now? That's a good question. And so when I'm taking my cuttings out in the orchard, I just take the whole vine, not the whole vine, sorry, the whole spur, right? So I'm taking a, a spur, I'm cutting it off and it's, you know, maybe four feet long. And so I transport it like that and I don't cut it again until I'm actually going to treat it for rooting. Otherwise, you're going to have more area exposed that's going to desiccate and dry out and not root well. So I leave it intact until I want to root it. And so when I get it back and I'm, I'm deciding that I'm going to go ahead and treat these for rooting, then I cut it into my sizes that I want. And what I'm looking to do is have at least two minimum buds per cutting, but I usually try to get three. And so the reason I'm doing that is the bottom bud is where I'm going to cut right below. And that bud's going to be where I'm going to get my adventitious roots. Um, that's going to be the my, my base, right? So I'm going to treat the bottom. After I cut them, I'm going to stick them maybe with a little bit of water in a jar until I'm all the way done with my cuttings. And then I'm going to dip them in a rooting hormone. I use an IBA synthetic uh, rooting hormone. Pretty cheap. You can get it online. I just dip it in that. Just get a little bit on there, and then I lay them in a paper towel. And when I'm done with my cuttings, I will roll them up in that paper towel that's moist, put a rubber band on it, and put it in a Ziploc bag and put it in the fridge. What I'm doing there is I'm trying to retain moisture so they don't dry out, and I'm putting it in the fridge for maybe a month just to give uh, some time for that area that I treated with the rooting hormone to develop some callus. Uh, which is important for when you put them into the humidity chamber. So I built a little box with some plastic and, and wood to retain humidity when I'm rooting these. So after I take them out of the fridge, I'm going to put them in a little pot with perlite. And this perlite is just going to help retain some moisture, but not too much. Because if you just put them into potting soil or topsoil and watered that, it'd get, it'd get too wet and retain too much moisture and you'd end up rotting your cuttings. So that perlite retains a little bit of moisture, but gives it a lot of breathing pore space, right? So it doesn't uh, rot in there. What time of the year are you taking these out of the refrigerator? Uh, I generally try not to start them too early in my basement because I have a limited amount of space, but I will probably take them out of my fridge sometime uh, the beginning of March uh, because it can take a couple of weeks for those roots to start to develop once they're in that uh, humidity chamber. And so you get a couple of weeks there, then, you know, pretty soon you're into April, then you put them under your grow lights and you get a little bit of growth on them and hopefully start putting them outside in May when on, you know, nice days, get them to kind of get acclimated to being outside. Uh, so hopefully you can plant them out in the field yet, you know, by the end of May, while it's still nice out, not too hot. So you don't want to, you don't really want to start rooting them in May and then try to plant them out in July, right? When it's really hot and dry out. Yeah, I want to avoid that. <laughs> right, so I want to get so, them out as early as I can. Yeah, so you take them out of the refrigerator. Now, this is a little bit of a new process for me. I'm kind of learning a little bit too because I don't, I don't always uh, partake in this part of it because it occurs in David's basement. <laughs> so, so as we said a couple of times now, <laughs> but um, so you take it out of the fridge, 
and you uh, trim it down to the, that one bud, or did that happen earlier? So taking a step back, when I talked about taking these cuttings right down to uh, two to three buds per cutting, that's done before they go in the fridge. So before they go in the fridge, I cut my cuttings down to that two to three buds, put them all in a bundle, make sure that they're all arranged properly with the buds facing up. So that way we're rooting the bottom of the cutting, not the top, because rooting the top won't work that well. (laughs) So you're going to want to have those all set up. They're going to be in your bundle and they're going to be ready to go when they come out of the fridge to go into your pot of perlite. Oh, yeah, because they have the hormone on them already when they went yep. into the fridge. I imagine you're getting to the planting part now, but so you have these either containers or little pots that are, you know, six inches deep by four by four wide or something like that. You can use a variety of sizes. It doesn't really matter, I'm sure. You have this potting medium or perlite that you start them in, like you said. Yep. So when you plant them into your pot using your potting mixture, is that one bud towards the base of the cutting, right? And that's, yes. that bud is actually where your roots come out? The roots are going to come out of that area around the bud. You know, it can be in other areas too, but generally speaking, that's where you're going to get a lot of your roots is right kind of out of the base of that bottom bud. Huh. I don't know if I knew that. I thought the rooting hormone would kind of, kind of just caused a bunch of cell division at the cutting site and somehow it started developing some roots out of there, but is it that, that's not the way it works. You don't actually see it out of the base of the cutting. You'll see adventitious roots kind of pushing through as you go up along the cutting. They're not actually at the base. They're up along sure. the cutting. And kind of like you see a corn stalk. You have them structural roots that come down off the side of a corn stalk that start coming yeah. up. So it's like kind of like that where they come up a little bit from the ground surface level or whatever. And- yep. And so generally speaking, you don't get too many roots up higher than that bottom bud, I wouldn't say. They're kind of just in that general area. And so that bottom bud won't generally give you the uh, uh, new growth that you're looking for as far as a uh, bud or, a, you know, a vine. That'll usually come from your top two buds that you left out of the perlite. You don't want to have them all in the perlite. We're just covering the bottom half of your cuttings in the perlite. Because the top half, I don't want to have covered up with that perlite because sometimes if your bud starts to emerge, it'll get idiolated and it'll have too much moisture around. You might get some mold or fungus growing on it and kill your bud there if it's all below the perlite. And also, when you're rooting these things, it is nice to have a uh, heat mat also in your humidity chamber to keep it nice and uh, humid, but also have yourself a little bit of heat in that perlite for that rooting. It also helps. We use heat mats every once in a while in our greenhouse at work here, too, to get to some increased emergence levels in our weeds that we grow for some of our weed science trials and things. So sometimes it's hard. Sometimes if you Google heat map plants, it's not usually a super common thing to Google and find to order. I feel like you have to Google, like, reptile cage heat mats <laughs> or something <laughs> like that. They want to keep it, the lizards nice and warm, so you put that below the sand, and then it. I've had more luck searching that for a heat mat versus looking up to try to find like a plant heat mat. And there are ones specifically for plants too, but like you said, going through Google, it might not get you to the right place. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So yeah, it's pretty, pretty basic really um, when it comes to rooting these uh, grapes. And like Joe mentioned, the, the variety or the size of the container doesn't matter a lot. I use stuff that you'd probably call more of like a tree pot 
because they're pretty narrow and tall, just because they don't take up a lot of square footage for me. Uh, but you get a lot of soil and a lot of being able to develop a lot of roots in a short, uh, small area as far as table space goes. So I like to have the taller, narrower containers. Yeah, what's your benchtop space square footage? Oh, geez, I don't know. Basically the size of a door. 30 inches by 80 inches? Something like that. I can fit, <laughs> uh, I've got four grow lights over the top of that area. How many plants can you start in your space? Um, I can usually start over 300 plants in that space. That's not talking grapes. I'm just talking my annuals that I start in the spring as far as vegetables and flowers. I can probably grow 350, 360 plants. Um, I have an additional grow light over another table that I can probably put another 50 grapevines. I usually don't start too many more than that. So. Yeah, so you can do a, a lot with a little bit of space. Oh. Yes, you can. <laughs> Basically, like what we're doing is, you know, we clip off our own spur or grapevine that's going to turn into, we rooted ourselves, and your other option is just to go buy a grape from the store. And you usually don't have some of the issues that you would have if you're trying to do this yourself. So can you talk about some of the things that have been problematic for you in terms of starting your own stuff as far as maybe disease or... Yeah, so no, that's a good point to make, and and it does have its challenges. But if you're going to plant a decent amount of grapevines, uh, you know those things are fifteen to twenty bucks ordering them from a catalog. And if you're going to put in a row of fifty grapes, I I don't want to spend twenty bucks a plant. <laughs> yeah, I remember um, us doing the math on that when we were talking about. It. We're like, holy cow. Yeah, so it, it's worth putting a little effort in, and it's really rewarding, too, and it's something fun to do in the winter when there's not a lot of other things going on outside as far as growing plants. Some of the challenges, you know, it, it's some of the things I kind of already mentioned, right? Making sure that your cuttings don't dry out, but also aren't too wet, right? So if they dry out and they get too hot in there, your roots are going to fry. On the other side, if it's too wet in there, your roots are your roots or your cutting is just going to rot and you're going to have mold and other things growing. I've also had my humidity chamber where I've had uh, some mold growing on the, on the plastic and wood that I made it out of. So I had to, in some years, you know, mix up a bleach solution just to sanitize my equipment and my humidity chamber just to keep it sanitary. So that's kind of been the issues that I've had. You know, sometimes you'll have where your cutting will root but then your buds are actually dead. And so you have a rooted cutting, but no buds to grow. That can be frustrating as well when you get them to root. Always start more than you need, right? Yes. Always, always start more than you need for sure. If I only need uh, six plants, I'm probably going to start 40 cuttings just to make sure I get those six plants. Uh, I didn't realize there's that many, but I suppose you can fit however many you can in your basement. <laughs> well, I mean, a little pot, you can put 40 cuttings in a little pot. And if half of them don't root, it doesn't matter. 20 cuttings or 40 cuttings in that little pot probably take up the same amount of space. Yeah, that's true. Do you have any issues with um, insects? Because I know in my greenhouse at work here, you know, we get bibs, we get white flies, we get gnat flies. Yeah, we get all sorts of pests, you know, um, in our greenhouse. I don't know if you've had any issues with that or not. I have not had too many issues with that. I'm trying to think of the one fly that I had. Um. I believe it's called a fungus gnat. Oh, yeah, the fungus gnat. Yep. 
the fungus gnat will lay its eggs in, you know, moist potting soil and stuff like that. And the larva will grow in there and eat the roots of your young plant. And so that can be a real issue if you end up with those. And key for that is just sanitize everything after that year and, you know, just make sure everything's clean when you start. So that happened to me one time at, at work there. Actually, it was when I was working on my industrial hemp graduate student project. There's a bunch of these fungus gnats in my, my greenhouse room. And I'm looking at the base of these these plants as I'm starting to click for biomass collection. And I noticed there's like these little things wiggling around by the base of the plant. And I'm like, what is that? So then I like collected them and I like put them on a microscope trying to figure out what these are. And turns out I'm pretty sure they were just fungus gnats. And one little tip that I realized with the fungus gnats is that if you, well, you can use that mosquito bait, they call it. Um, there's like these little pellets that you can soak in water and that'll help alleviate some of the really small worms that can get in there when they're first like, hatching. And then if you also put sand, it's so a little layer of sand, like a half-inch thick layer of sand over the top of your pot. Then the, the larva can't actually crawl through it to turn into an adult, you know, because it'll just scrape itself up with, like, the little crystals of quartz or whatever. So I think I've also heard of the sand being used as a deterrent for the adults to lay their eggs there because you're going to have that layer of dry sand. And the yeah, adults can't lay in there. Yeah. Yeah. The adults won't lay their eggs in that. Yeah. But so they might still lay their eggs in the bottom holes of your pot. So. Yeah, there's know, that. <laughs> might be so effective. <laughs> you should reduce your, reduce your, uh, incense level anyways. Correct. So. Yeah. So you got all these plants here now. Now we're in, you know, May. So David's hauling them all up in his minivan, <laughs> you know, <laughs> over to the farm and we bring them over to the orchard and we lay them out. You know, we might mark out certain spacing. I think our plants are, what, eight feet apart? Depending on variety, they're either eight or six feet apart for the grapes. Okay. Do you, off the top of your head, know which ones are the sixes versus eights? So we planted most of ours to eight feet, regardless in our area where we're trialing it. But then when we moved to doing whole rows of one variety, we planted the Louis Swenson at a six-foot spacing. Because the Louis Swenson is a slower growing vine and generally doesn't take up as much space as some of those other more vigorous varieties like a King of the North or Sabrevoir or Frontenac Blanc. We did talk a little bit about the winter hardiness of some of this stuff. And what are some of the cultivars that we kind of have issues with as far as dieback or things like that in the orchard? There's really only two varieties that we've had issues with, uh, one of them being Brianna. Uh, that one is a, a white grape. It's a nice grape if you can make wine out of it, but it it doesn't have as good a winter hardiness. And the other one would be Somerset Seedless. That one seems to be a little better than Brianna for us. We get some dieback every year, but generally there's enough there's enough buds left to get a decent crop off the Somerset Seedless, usually. The Brianna, though, we've had it where we've had enough dieback where we get nothing off of them. So we're here in May. We lay them out eight foot or six foot, you know, apart. And then we basically just take a little, little scoop shovel, scoop it down as deep as your pot would be, and then take out any of the gravel or dirt and rocks. And what I like to do is I take my, the, the stem of the grape and stick it between like my index and my ring finger or something like that. And then tip it upside down, pat it tight. So that way, at least it's not just falling out, you know, on you on the ground or something. And then using the other hand to kind of cup it to keep, keep as much as you can in there because these small plants there's not a lot of roots sometimes when we get to planting them and so you kind of lose a little bit of soil or potting mix and 
try to keep it in as tight as possible. But when you put it in there, you also want to make sure the roots pointing downwards too. Like you curl it in like a J fashion or something like that when you're sticking those plants in the ground. I don't know any other planting tips. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's hard, right? You know, we're in a sandy soil, and you want to make sure that you water them well uh, at planting. And sometimes it's nice just to put water into the hole before you put them in there, because otherwise it'll run off before it soaks in sometimes, right? Um, so just making sure you get good watering at the time of planting, but also you're going to want to be back there every week watering them for a while, unless you're getting some decent rainfall. And that first year is the toughest year. We're not expecting to get a lot of growth out of them. You know, we're going to get a little growth. Hopefully, they're putting more energy into their roots. And if they die back to the ground after the first year, I don't care as long as they come back. But it's going to take three years to get to a, a, a mature enough vine to get some production out of. Yeah, we've had some vines in the first year make it up to five feet to the wire. Yeah. We've been able to time up to the wire there. And then hopefully, yeah, they didn't spend too much energy and, and last the next year. But yeah. Oftentimes, I feel like they make it about halfway. First year, it's pretty common, and then by the second year, you get up the rest of the way. And you can tie them off, and that type of thing. And we and we do use the little bamboo stakes to help guide them up. Like, how do you tie them up to the wire? Well, they, they well our trellis system that David talked about, but then we also have like these these uh, bamboo stakes that we stick in the ground um, right next to the plant, and then it kind of helps them travel up vertically to the wire that David mentioned about. So, yeah, and then you go from there. So that was kind of the quick and dirty on the grapes. Please listen on on the uh, next episode to learn a little bit more specifics on our apples. Talk a bit more about the rootstock and the scion wood for those and some of the different trellis or pruning methods there. Listen up on the next episode. Otherwise, that's a wrap on the grapes. Thank you, David, for uh, joining in on the fun action here. Anyone wants to leave any feedback or ratings on any of the podcast episodes, especially this one that you're listening to, please feel free to rate and leave comments. Love to hear what you guys have to say and what you guys think of the podcast. It also helps other listeners find our podcast by leaving the ratings, so that's always helpful, too. You can find me at homegrownfam at gmail.com. Shoot me an email with any questions you have. Yeah, thank you all for tuning in.